Welcome CKTZ 89.5 listeners to a special live town hall with our MP Rachel Blaney. This is produced by Cortez Currents and CKTZ Cortez Community Radio with support from the Community Radio Fund of the Local Journalism Initiative of Canada. It is hosted by Ashley Zarbatani, a neighbor who's taught me most of what I know about the Canadian political system. I am your uh, background DJ, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. Thank you so much, Ashley and Rachel Blaney, for being with us. Um, neighbors, you may call in today to the studio at 250-935-0200, and I will do my bo- best to get those questions um, to, to Rachel. All right, now over to... There were some technical difficulties. And initially, no one in the Zoom chat room could hear what was being broadcast over the radio. As Rachel put it, after we finally connected. All right, we couldn't hear you for a minute there. So I don't know what you said, but I'm really happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Manda. Thank you, Manda, for that great introduction. (laughs) I... Hello everyone. I'm so excited to be your MC this evening. I love town halls because it gives everyone an opportunity to hear what their fellow citizens are dealing with and are concerned about, and it gives us the opportunity to directly participate in our democracy, which I love. I wanna give a great big welcome to our member of parliament, Rachel Blaney, who is joining us tonight live on Zoom And if you're just tuning into the radio right now and you would also like to join us on Zoom, check out our website at cortezradio.ca where you can find the link to join in. Rachel has been our MP since 2015. She is the federal NDP whip and critic for veterans and she's a strong advocate for a national senior strategy. She is also committed to ending poverty and food insecurity for seniors in Canada and tackling the rising cost of living. Rachel has lived and worked in coastal communities for over 20 years and is dedicated to protecting our coastlines for future generations. It is a great pleasure to see you again. And thank you for joining us here tonight. How are you doing? Well, I'm really, really happy to be here with everyone today. I'm in Ottawa, so it's a little bit later for me. Uh, but I'm just really happy that we could organize this and, and make it happy and looking forward to the questions that I'm going to get today. Awesome. Thank you. That's so great that you're joining us from Ottawa. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you've been doing out there for us? Well, I just got back to Ottawa last night. And of course, the reason I'm here is because uh, the House will be sitting Uh, tomorrow for the throne speech, the second throne speech in this parliament. And as the whip, uh, unfortunately, I had no choice but to travel across uh, the country to get here. And uh, what we're working on, what I've been working on today is just how are we going to do this? Um, We're discussing among all the different party whips about what, how this is going to roll out. But I would say in the last few months, I've really uh, just been focusing on working largely uh, from home for people in the riding. Uh, You know, the reality is COVID-19 has changed 
the landscape of our political world fundamentally. And it's been very interesting to find new ways to participate in your democracy in a different way. And the issues, of course, were just figuring out how to support people during this time, figuring out how to support small businesses. Uh, we want to make sure they get the supports they need so they can stay. And, and looking at economic justice in our country, I think that one of the things that we're seeing really clearly through COVID-19 is that uh, sort of imbalance that a lot of people knew about, but this has unfolded and opened up the window for us to see it a lot more clearly. So those are just a few of the things that I've been doing over the last little while. The pandemic has exposed a lot of vulnerabilities to us, hasn't it? It really has. And, you know, I think the first few months were, you know, exhausting for everyone. And I know my office was inundated with calls. We were working with people uh, day in and day out. You know, it was to the point where we were checking messages every weekend and responding to people because it was just a really scary time. And when we're scared, I think it's important that we all find ways to support one another. And now, um, you know, we're gonna probably, it looks like a second wave is coming. We're seeing the numbers increase and we're gonna go through another period of time where we're gonna have some challenges. Definitely, it's really scary. I saw the article today saying that we're in the second wave here in BC. I was wondering if you could speak more about the work that you've been doing to make sure that people and small businesses are supported during COVID? Well, you know, first of all, <laughs> it's kind of interesting because when I look at this journey, I think about the fact that at the beginning of February, I said to my team, um, you know, because we get hundreds of emails a day and during COVID we were getting thousands of emails a day, plus all the phone calls. And I remember saying uh, in the second week of February, this whole coronavirus thing is starting to come up a little bit more. Is anyone in the constituency really concerned? And I think we'd had two emails at that point where people were expressing some concern. And then middle of March, it just exploded as everybody knows. So what we did originally, I don't know if everybody remembers, but originally what uh, the Liberal government was saying is, well, we'll just give people EI. But we know that a large part of Canadians are not eligible for EI support. So what about them? And then we had the Prime Minister say, we're going to do a wage subsidy for 10% for businesses in Canada. And we were like, 10% when everything is shut down, how is that going to help businesses move forward? And we saw in other countries that they were doing a 75% wage subsidy. So those were the two things that we focused on first. Let's get some money out to people who are not eligible for EI. We were pushed really hard. We're really happy when the $2,000 CERB came out. That took a lot of work. And then of course they followed up fairly quickly with the 75%. But there was still so many businesses just left out. And I think that was one of the hardest parts uh, was just all these nuances. People who have you know, a little contract business in their home that supports themselves. Uh, they were not eligible for CERB. They were not eligible for the wage subsidies. We worked really hard and we finally got that changed. I remember working and, and that was what was so interesting and also very scary, you know, working with travel agents of, of all folks, uh, wouldn't even have thought of them, but they had, of course, 
people were pulling out of their trips. And so the, they were sending money back. So not only were they not making an income, they were having to send all of their money back to people who are withdrawing from those trips and they were not eligible for the CERB either. So, you know, we really found out and then later on small businesses, there were particular groups that were not businesses that were not eligible. So we, and we're still not all the way there. We're still fighting for some key parts of the business community that are not eligible. Mm -hmm. And there were exemptions for students, right? And it was the NDP that fought to include the students in the CERB? Yeah. Can you speak a little bit more about that? That was a very distressing process and thank you for reminding me about it. Uh, you know, what we saw is that, that students were going to get significantly less money than everybody else. And what we kept hearing from the government was, mm -hmm. well, kids are going to go home and live with their parents. And we were saying not all students are young people who have a home to go to. You know, they could be young and have a family. They could be young and not have a family to go home to. They can be a mature student that are trying to support their family. It just made no sense. And we had to push really hard for them to understand that. And I think that that is probably, you know, I've been now elected almost five years. And one of the things that I found particularly concerning the Liberal government is they make a lot of broad assumptions about who people are. And you really, we shouldn't be making broad assumptions. We should be listening to the research and getting the, res the resources out to people who need them. So we fought really hard and we're successful with that. And that, that has been hard. And even now, you know, what we're dealing with right now is really small businesses that are using their own personal accounts to move their, their businesses through. And they've totally been left out and that is not okay because there are people, that's how they run their business. They're legitimate businesses. They can prove they're legitimate businesses and, um, and still being left out of the resources that they need uh, to survive this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of surviving this pandemic, there's been a lot of talk about having a just recovery. Mm -hmm. I was wondering what, your vision is and what the NDP vision is for creating a new green economy that helps lift up everyone and helps make sure that we're taking this, this opportunity to invest not only in recovering from the pandemic, but also addressing climate change. Well, you know, one of the things that I'll start off by talking about this is I do my little mail outs, you all get them in the mail. And um, I sent out one not too long after COVID hit and it took forever to get it back to me. We can talk about the whole story about how it had to go to Ottawa, that it had to come back to, to Campbell River and all those fun things, but it took a long time. But one of the things I found really interesting in reading all of them was how people started to put together economic justice with climate justice in a way that I hadn't seen before in our constituency. And I thought that was really inspiring to me because it's something that I fundamentally believe in, that if we're going to move forward uh, and making a more sustainable economy, focusing more on addressing seriously the climate crisis, we also need to look at how poverty impacts people and how we're silencing people and their own ability to have justice, both in terms of their economics and uh, their environment. So I'm really excited to see that in our writing and hope that continues. For us, our plan is really, uh, you know, quite comprehensive, I believe, and I know we're still working on it. And now we're, we're having discussions within our caucus about now that we're dealing with 
COVID, what's the next step? And how are we going to take what we've seen? And we've, I've heard a lot of constituents talk about this, is the capacity to respond. And that's what we saw this government do. We saw the government respond very quickly to addressing COVID. Uh, so how can we sort of see that energy uh, really follow up with the climate crisis? I'm not convinced that the Liberals are going to do that, sadly. I mean, they still have Harper's targets, right? Like when we look at the emissions that we're measuring ourselves against in this country, those continue to be Harper's targets, which were devastating, and we're not even close to matching those or meeting those. So that's a really big concern. So for us, we're looking at really talking about a just transition, looking at a regional approach that looks at what are the resources and what are the employment opportunities in a more green energy system within regions. We want to see people staying at home, staying closer to home. I know in our writing, we still have a lot of people who travel away uh, for work and we don't have a, a plan here. So that's something that I'm really working on as well. Um, and significant investment in renewable resources. You know, one of the things I'm personally frustrated with is how the oil and gas industry, even during this pandemic, continues to get big subsidies uh, from the government. And I would really like to see some of those subsidies actually being redirected towards a more renewable resource economy. I know a lot of people who are doing a lot of innovative work, and if they had that extra little bit, it would really let them sort of step over that tipping point and help us move forward. So we want to see those investments. Of course, I uh, want to see more public transit, especially in our bigger centers. I want to see it in our smaller centers too, don't get me wrong. Uh, we know that's a huge challenge in our riding, uh, but definitely want to see more energy efficient public transit, especially in those centers where those uh, will really have a, an impact on our greenhouse uh, emissions. And, and then again, it's just, you know, I think about how we could be pulling on people's resiliency and their creativity. And I always talk about Iron and Earth, which is a group in Alberta. I know people have heard me talk about it before. Oil and gas workers who have said, hey, here's our skill sets. This is how we can apply it into a different economy that's better for the environment, but will also allow us to maintain our jobs and maintain the standard of living uh, that we're used to and getting those good paying jobs. And then I think the other part, I'm always gonna be bringing this up, is that economic justice part. Right now we have big corporations across the planet that are not accountable. And some of the things that we could do, like I think of one um, uh, member's bill that came up in last parliament, and I know Alistair Rager, who's one of our caucus members who put it forward, is wanting to put it forward again. Now with prorogation, he's gonna have to do it again. Um, that just talks about how are we investing our Canadian pension plan across the world. And let's make sure that where we invest that money is actually something that we can stand by as Canadians. And right now we're seeing investments in things that are not good for the environment. I'd way rather see our money invested in ways that we can feel proud, but also support a better uh, climate for everyone. Thank you, Rachel. That was a great answer. And I love Iron and Earth. Uh, we have a question <laughs> coming in from Brian McKinnon. And he asks, what is your best thinking on the need for wage subsidy and CERB? So, um, well, many of you probably already know this, but we're waiting for the throne speech and we're hoping also for bills to come forward. The CERB runs out very soon. And what we wanna see is a plan moving forward. What we've heard from the 
Prime Minister and from the government is that they're going to propose something uh, that won't be the same as CERB. That concerns me greatly. Um, you know, I understand there's challenges uh, for people. We want to see employment happening, but if you have uh, any health concerns, childcare, like I can't even tell you how big of an issue that's becoming in our writing. People want to go back to work. There is no childcare, very limited. It was already a challenge, but now the COVID has impacted it even more. So how can they work? So that's always the worry. Uh, I think the wage subsidy program uh, continues to be something that works for a lot of businesses, not all. I did appreciate we worked really hard because of course um, you have to prove that you've lost 30% of your income. And what we were saying to them is what happens if you've lost 29.5% of your income? Does that mean that 100% you're losing the wage subsidy? They do now have a more tiered approach. We're continuously uh, keeping in contact with businesses across the riding uh, to see how things are going so that we can bring that information back to them. I have to say one of the things uh, that I do think has been healthier during this process is that we do have a minority government. And I find after living under a majority government uh, and then now in a minority government, they do talk to us a lot more. Uh, because they know that we hold some more power. So uh, we have really tried to work closely with small businesses across the riding. So as things worked and as things didn't work, we were able to get a hold of the appropriate minister and inform them of what was working and where those barriers were. Sometimes we can change things in regulations and make it easier. Uh, so that's what we've been working on. So I, I hope that answers uh, the question. I did my best based on what I heard. Uh, but we would like to see the CERB continue. We're very concerned uh, that they're going to be cutting those dollars back, worried they're going to go in an EI model, which again leaves a lot of people out. Um, but we also want to make sure that they're supporting businesses. I keep saying that in our riding, we want to see businesses make it through this time because we don't want to spend a lot of time rebuilding. Once this is over, we need businesses here so that we can recover as quickly as possible. And there's a motion being forward, put forward by another NDP MP, Lynn Gazan, to mm -hmm. institute a universal guaranteed income, motion 46. I was wondering if you could speak on that. Well, uh, Leah Gazan and I are, are very dear friends and I'm one of the people who talked her into running. So I think someday she likes me and someday she's not so sure. Uh, but I really think that we need to have a, a, a basic income program in Canada. One of the concerns that I have, not necessarily with her bill, uh, but I really wanna be careful about how we do it is we've seen basic income in other countries mean the sudden cutback on every other service and has left you know, the very wealthy doing even better with a basic income and the most vulnerable doing even worse. So I think you know we're continuing to have discussions. We have that motion. I think that's a great place uh, to speak. I think Leah's done a great job in promoting it uh, and getting people talking about it because you know we talked about this earlier, COVID really sort of opened up a lot of people's eyes to the inequality in this country. And once you start to see that more clearly, it's harder to go back. And I really hope we don't go back. I hope that this continues to open people's eyes to see, you know, like I remember during this time talking to seniors who were like, I have had to get all my food delivered, Rachel. I don't have an extra $100 a month to get all my food delivered. Or dispensing fees, uh, you know, one of the things we saw is right when COVID, and it's still happening once in a while, is that 
a lot of people about medication and accessibility. So they were giving you only a month worth, for example. And every time you go into the pharmacist to get more, you have to pay dispensing fees. So what's, you know, once every three months you would pay it, get three months worth of medication. We were seeing a lot of, of people with vulnerable health condition, vulnerable health conditions getting like one month, one month. And those all those little fees, it doesn't seem like a lot. Somebody has money, but if you don't, you are really out of luck. Um, and then, of course, like I think about this time, sorry if I'm going on, but, you know, we had that uh, apartment building burned down uh, in Campbell River. And suddenly we had all of those people homeless in the middle of a pandemic. You know, it has been extremely stressful for people. And I think that we really need to address the issue of inequality and we need to stop attacking one another. You know, we hear this all the time. People say, I'm poor. How about those people who got that? Please, I want people to understand that people who are getting away with highway robbery are the top 1% who are seeing more and more returns every year in their money, and we are seeing less and less. So let's go after the 1% together. I fully concur. <laughs> and uh, since you mentioned it, actually, I was wondering if you could speak more to the NDP plan for pharmacare and, and how you guys are working towards implementing that and dental care. Well, those are really important, um, so important. So, you know, we continue to work really hard for pharmacare. In the last throne speech, uh, not even a year ago, we heard uh, from the Liberals that they were going to be looking into pharmacare. What was extremely frustrating, extremely frustrating is, I don't know if everybody remembers in last parliament, they talked about pharmacare. They like to talk about things a lot. I'm expecting a wonderful speech from the throne. Lots of great words. Not sure they're gonna do anything because they've certainly proven that they don't always take that next step of action. But they spoke about it. And then they had in last parliament, a wonderful group of amazing people get together and do research on what is the best model moving forward. And they came forward with the model that the NDP has been proposing, a universal system that would allow everybody to get the medication that they needed. Um, it really looked at how to identify some key medications that are more rare so that we don't have people who have specific needs left out of the system. Um, and then they wouldn't move forward, even though their expert panel came forward and said that. So we're going to continue to push. We have been pushing them really hard. Uh, of course, COVID sort of stopped a lot of things. Uh, Parliament wasn't running in the same way. So we would continue to push, but not have as many tools in our toolbox, I like to say. Uh, and around dental care, we're still working on that. Again, that was mentioned in the throne speech, no action. We proposed a, a, a motion in the House of Commons saying, let's make it so anybody making $90,000 and yes, less, let's give them full dental care. It would make a huge impact uh, for so many Canadians. Um, I can't even tell you how many people I've talked to who the dental, the dental program was the most inspiring thing for them in the last election where they talked about, you know, having to get lots of teeth pulled. They can't find work because nobody wants to hire people without their front teeth. Um, just the shame of how expensive it is and that they can't afford it. I remember, you know, going to one dental office uh, in Campbell River that one day a year will take low income people in and, and a bunch of dentists come together and they do a ton of work. And when I see it, they, the lineup was ridiculous and they can never get to the end of that lineup, so many people. So this is a real issue of justice. Uh, and it doesn't make sense to me that we will 
you know, we have a healthcare system that will deal with a lot of issues, but if you need medication so that you don't have to go to the hospital, yeah, we don't do that, makes no sense. And we will, you know, do all the other stuff, we won't do anything with your teeth unless it includes pulling them out of your mouth. It doesn't make sense, let's look after Canadians, uh, let's make sure that it's fair, and let's stop sort of rewarding the very wealthy rest of Canadians suffer. Thank you, Rachel. We have a calling question. The question, what about low-income single mothers and those on income assistance now facing losing their support? How can we take care of those, not just elderly, but women and families and others too? Well, this is a huge issue and I talked about it earlier, uh, you know, that there's no child care plan, something the NDP has been fighting for, uh, for many, many years, having a national investment in, in childcare is really important. I've had conversations, of course, with members from Quebec who have implemented a system like that. They talked about how they, looking back, they would have rolled it out a little bit slower, which I think is very interesting because BC is actively doing that. They're aggressively rolling it out, but not as quickly. The reason why is because what they found is by rolling it out really quickly, big corporations actually built huge places for childcare and they didn't see as many small community sort of centered childcare systems. So that was one of the barriers. But what they did see that I think is incredibly positive is the economy picked up very quickly because there was affordable childcare. In BC, this is a huge issue. Childcare is as much or more than rent and mortgage payments, for example. So we need to see that. And especially for single moms, we need to have those resources there. That is why we're fighting really hard to try to make sure that CERB stays in place especially as the second wave happens. You know, a lot of families are struggling with making decisions about if they should send their children to school or not. And I respect that. And I respect that BC has given alternative methods for people to choose from. Uh, but we definitely need to make sure that people are getting the resources that they need and supporting the most vulnerable. And I think this is why Leah's idea around basic income is really important. I just wanna make sure it's fair and that single moms don't get left behind because the model isn't the right one. And this, uh, that reminds me that one of the issues that I, that was brought up during this period was that people who are on income assistance and disability were not eligible for CERB if they made under a certain amount of money every year. And that disproportionately impacts poor people and, and, and families. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I appreciate BC did some work to increase the income assistance. I heard some positive feedback for that for sure. The disability question continues to frustrate me. So you, you started this, I'm going to start ranting, but I am really frustrated. You know, what the federal government said is we can only give people, persons living with disabilities who receive the disability tax credit any extra resources. And I have been doing town halls across our riding on disability tax credit for years. We just did a, a virtual one not too long ago, uh, trying to educate people. But what we find is the process is very cumbersome. Unless you are actually paying income tax, uh, you don't get much back at all. So for low income people, they often don't know what the value is of the disability tax credit. 
so this is a, certainly a challenge. And so initially, uh, the federal government came forward and said, that's all we'll give it to is people getting disability tax credit, which left out 60% of persons living with disabilities across Canada. So we fought really hard. And we got people that were getting the CPP disability included and veterans who have a disability pension included as well, which lowered it down to 40% of persons living with disability, which was still really hard to take, but we could not get them to move any farther. Uh, they just couldn't understand how to get information from all the provinces and territories uh, to identify who those folks are. And they weren't even willing to explore giving resources to provinces and territories to disperse that money through provincial programs. Uh oh, did Ashley freeze? Oh, there she is. Matt uh -oh. is having issues. <laughs> I can ask the next question um, sure. that just came in. Is that, can you hear me, Rachel? I can. Uh, this is Manda in the CKTZ radio station. Uh, we had a question from Noba Anderson, uh, and she said, in retrospect, given that COVID will be one early huge global disruption, one of many to come, and given that deep adaptivity and resiliency will really come from the most local planning and preparedness, how can the federal government support deep local adaptivity planning and implementation? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's a great question and I agree. You know, I think of the uh, interesting conversations in the last five years that I've had uh, with people working in Ottawa about our riding. And it's very apparent when we talk to them that they, they have no clue where we live. Some of the solutions they give us, I'm like, the ocean is in the way for that idea. So uh, I think it really makes sense when we have local solutions uh, because people who live here know what's best, period. Uh, so what I do to facilitate that is just work with local uh, levels of government. Uh, and there's a lot of them. You know, we, I represent over 20 Indigenous communities, 11 municipalities, and four regional districts. So it's, it always keeps me on my toes. Uh, just trying to work really closely with them and as things come available to sort of support them in making sure that those resources get here uh, as quickly as possible. And sometimes they take a long time. I think about, um, you know, right before June, before last election last year, um, was a lot of fun because we still had not had the agreement uh, for our internet, our broadband across the riding. So there had been a huge announcement. The federal government made a few huge announcement that all across our riding, we were gonna be getting you know, some things built. It was gonna make a big difference in our internet accessibility. It was very exciting. Uh, and then, you know, over a year later, here I was in June desperately trying to get them to finalize the agreement before the election. Because if there was a change in government, I was worried that we weren't going to get those resources. And at the very last minute, right before the election, we got it signed off on. Uh, and so now we're still waiting <laughs> because COVID's disrupted the building process. So that's, that's what I do. I try to work really closely with local government. Uh, on what they need to see, look at gaps in funding, talk to the appropriate ministers, and continue to work forward uh, from that perspective, knowing that our solutions make the most sense we live here. And Ashley's back. 
Yes, sorry. <laughs> rural living. <laughs> and rural I'm working on that. <laughs> um, so I have a question from Manda Gillespie. The question is, housing in remote and destination communities like Cortez is becoming difficult with lack of options and numerous empty homes and foreign investors, yet the tools that BC has been exploring, such as the empty home tax, don't apply in small communities like ours. Is there a national strategy that you can imagine for ensuring that rural Canadians have access to more housing options? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a very timely. I, I can't speak to the BC programs. I'll let your BC, whoever your new BC representative will be, uh, let you know about those programs. But there is a national housing strategy. Uh, it was announced several years ago. Uh, it was a frustrating strategy for me because it really treated uh, our housing crisis across Canada like it was going to be in 10 years. And what I know from our riding is it's today, it's now, and it, it needs resources soon. I don't know if everybody saw, but a few weeks ago, our housing spokesperson, Jenny Kwan, uh, got a letter back and realized that of the National Housing Strategy funding, only 0 0.5, 0 0.5 has come to British Columbia over the last two years. And 94% of it has gone to Ontario, which is very, very concerning. Uh, so as far as we can find in our riding, only one project received a minuscule amount, an actual building project of national housing strategy. We've had money come in uh, to help retrofit some of the housing units that were for social housing. We've had some money come in for subsidies. Uh, in the first two years, we actually saw about $13 million come into our riding on those concerns, but it's still not addressing the key housing crisis. And for rural communities, especially uh, like smaller communities like Cortez, where we may have some serious gaps, and I know there's a group there that's been working really hard to try to fill in some of those gaps, um, it's a real hard pull. So, you know, what I can say is this, um, we continue to find those ways and, and expose it uh, so that we can actually call the government to account. I'm really glad that you know, Jenny did that work and we've been able to pull that out. And, and now I, I've seen that the government has announced uh, some more money that's supposed to be coming. We'll see. Again, they like to announce things. It doesn't mean they actually do them. That's my job to keep bugging them about it. What I do know that the government likes to see is collaborative approaches, which I think our small communities are very strong at. And I just really ask people when you send any application of, of funding, uh, please let our office know. It really makes a difference in my ability uh, to go and follow up with it. Uh, you know, there's been times where ministers will see me coming and they'll be like, yes, Rachel, this project. And I'm like, yes, I'm just reminding you that the good people in my riding need these resources. And, you know, I, I am a firm believer in being pleasantly persistent. I like to be a nice person, but boy, I like to make sure they never forget. Uh, and we actually saw, I just want to brag for a moment, in the last election, I was able to proudly say in the first couple of years, I brought in more money as an opposition member than the former member of parliament for this region had brought in in the last nine years as a cabinet member. Wow. 
We have, we have our regional director here with us on the Zoom, and she would like to ask you a question. He asked um, me when I'm ready. So Noba. Hi, Noba. Oh, chaos and pandemonium. Hey, Rachel, thanks for joining us. Um, and I expect my question is essentially an unanswerable one, but I have to ask it because it is just what is, is so much pressing to me. And it, it's a follow-up to the question I asked around um, resourcing really local communities. And so what I experience in the regional district is even if everybody is, has the very best of intentions, um, there's such diversity within a regional district and any one rural area's interest in doing um, deep adaptive climate resilient planning and adaptation will be very different from another. And we're, you know, one voice out of 13, et cetera. So although your answer is a very good one about working with all levels of local government, First Nation, municipal, regional district, I think when it really comes down to um, meaningful adaptive climate planning response, it will be at the utmost local level in, in regional districts that aren't represented by municipalities. And even perhaps in municipal situations where there's a nonprofit that's really taking leadership or a citizens assembly group or something. So I, I guess my, my query is how can we, and if it's unanswerable, that's fine, but how can we bring toolkits, maybe it's not even a whole bunch of money, but toolkits and resources and best practices and models so that local communities who are really keen on figuring out how to truly figure out how to be adaptive, not just in planning, but do we develop seed banks? Do we develop shared gardening? Do we develop local hydro grids? Like what are the ways that on the ground we can really get ready for what I anticipate to be a slow decay of our social support systems and our economic, global economic um, and trade system. So how can we be empowering communities that are willing and ready and able um, to really do this good work? Because as, as these systems decay, the, our larger governments and, and even the most local governments that sometimes don't have the nimbleness to be able to respond in a really good way. So an impossible question for you, Rachel, but at least please take it away. And if there's anything <laughs> you can do to bring, um, any kind of best practice resource toolkits, anything to our avail. I mean, I've just done a call today with the Climate Hope group here. And how do you gather in this time? Like we had a whole plan in the spring for community engagement. Well, that's all out the window. People are, are totally overwhelmed with the pandemic and then the fires and a sense of hopelessness. So how do we support communities to do this good work when they're ready and able? And that, that's a lot of airtime. Thank you. Well, thank you for the really you, questions. I, I will always come back for, for those kind of good questions. Well, but I think this is seriously the question of our age. I mean, it, it is. And I think, you know, my first response would be, we need the government to take this seriously. I remember a year ago yelling, <laughs> and I mean, everybody sees me in the house. It's not a surprise. I do get angry. <laughs> I have a bit of a temper. but. Um, you know, I remember saying to the minister, you know, 6,000 scientists agree. What else do you need? Like, seriously, that's how I felt. Like, just tell me what you need and I will go out and get it. Like, because it's, it's frustrating. Science is being very clear uh, and, and, and it is a challenge uh, for making solutions. And I think the other part that's a challenge is how many people don't believe this is really happening. I mean, let's 
that that's another factor, you know, like when I try to move people, I'm like, oh, you know, like it feels a little bit uh, frustrating and, and hard at times. So I think in terms of local solutions um, and investment from the government, we need a government that will take it seriously and really agree, not just in words, but in actual action that there is a climate crisis. Um, the other part is, you know, one of the challenges is, of course, the federal government is, as a funder, is extremely slow and cumbersome. So that can be a challenge as well. Uh, so I think, pandemics. yeah, except for in a pandemic. And, you know, I had this question not too long ago. I was in a, another Zoom meeting with some constituents and they're like, well, we just did so much. Like we responded. It was amazing. And I said, well, now we just got to convince them it's real. And I don't, like, I, I don't know, I, I'm not the person uh, to convince them. If they don't believe 6,000 scientists from across this planet, like what, what do they need? Like I said earlier, we still are basing our measurement on Stephen Harper's emissions targets. Like, I don't even know what to say about that. I am so embarrassed on behalf of all Canadians that that is our tool of measurement. So I think, you know, it's it's like that whole part. We've just got to continue doing what we're doing, acting local. I know during COVID in the very beginning, we had a lot of remote communities calling us, a lot of Indigenous communities calling us, very worried about food security, you know, unsure about how they were going to get food to their communities when everything was sort of locked down. Uh, we helped several of them find resources uh, to build community gardens and so I think you know sometimes these innovations really allow people to see the opportunity and sometimes these scary times allow us to know we got to rely on each other so I'll continue to struggle with that one and all I can say is keep reminding me to keep struggling one of the best things I can say is I don't mind people contacting my office once every couple of weeks to say where's this where's this you know it's there's a lot happening a lot going across my my desk I don't mind reminders Thank you, Rachel. And on the topic of the climate crisis, we have a question from Max. He says, between climate change and biodiversity loss, soil depletion, oil depletion, etc., are we risking creating a kind of hell on earth that threatens civilization and maybe even the survival of homo sapiens, what kind of chances do you give us for making it through the next century with our society, our ecosystems and our livelihoods intact? And what does this mean about the morality of Canada as a society that we would risk so much and for what? Wow. Um, well, I think it's, it's really scary. I, I don't know what else to say. You know, I remember uh, during the election uh, when the Liberals announced their plan to uh, plant six billion trees or six million trees. They, and I had a, a forestry biologist call me and be like, that doesn't help. <laughs> like, what's the plan? How are they going to plant those? Like, everything is so delicate in our system that we can't just plant a bunch of trees willy-nilly. We have to have a real strategic plan. So it's nice that they say that, but what is the plan? And this is probably the most frustrating thing. I gotta be honest, like never in a million years would I have ever thought that I'd be sitting here doing this political work. It was never, um, never <laughs> in my life plan, but sometimes life takes you to interesting places. And I just have to say, it is scary. 
what I hold on to is uh, the amazing Alberta Billy who lives on Quadra Island. She's an Indigenous elder, um, a huge support to me. And she always says to me, we do it because we must. So even when it's hard, Rachel, and you're tired and you're frustrated and you want to quit because you don't know what the point is. And there are days where I feel like I'm banging my head against a wall. Um, I just remember that we do it because we must. And I don't do it just for people. I do it because we have a planet. There's these beautiful creatures everywhere. Insects, whales, you know, the elk, some of the ones that we're losing up in the area that I grew up in, in northern BC. Like, we have to do it not only for people, not only for the future of our children, but the future of the planet. And so um, sometimes I'm really hopeless too, but I keep doing it because that is what I must do. And I know that everybody is doing that. And I really appreciate all of the hard work that people are putting into that. Thank you, Rachel. We have another question from Max and it has to do with species that we care about, the salmon. He asks, when I speak to people who fish commercially and to indigenous fisheries managers, I hear that DFO is continuing to mismanage fisheries and salmon stocks are struggling. This represents a violation of the constitutionally enshrined right to traditional food and life ways for indigenous people and food security for settlers. What the hell is going on and when are we going to take wild fish seriously as the backbone of the BC coast? Well, that's an excellent question and something that I really am passionate about. Of course, a lot of people know who I'm married to, uh, Darren Blaney, who's the chief of the Hamathco folks, cousins of Clahoos. Um, so I know where you guys all are. And, um, you know, the salmon are the backbone. And there's so many stories in this territory that talk about what they are uh, to the communities, what they are to the to the earth and the planet and to the other wildlife in the water. So it's really, it's, it's seriously concerning. So what I would say is yes, you know, we have some lovely people who work at DFO in our riding. I'm not gonna say anything negative about them, but what we have to recognize is they are severely under-resourced. This is a concern that I brought up with the minister multiple times that we do not have enough people monitoring the issues that are arising. We don't have enough scientists actually studying what's happening in our waters and helping us come to uh, some good plans moving forward. I think there's a lot of people in our communities who just wanna get to work. And if they were told what and how, they would get to it, but we need that science. We need to be watching it. Uh, one of the things that we're working really hard with a lot of indigenous communities up and down the coast on is the Guardian program. So, you know, since DFO isn't able to do it, and I, I would love to see more people, like the amount of people representing our area is minuscule for the amount just the, my riding in itself is just under 60,000 square kilometers. A lot of that is coastline. There's a lot of islands in our riding. So uh, we really are supporting that. I'm working with those communities, working with uh, the government to start putting some resources in there because we would love to have more Indigenous people out there doing the work that they traditionally did. It would be great for their economy, but it would also get people back on the water and start managing this resource. Uh, and, and the issues are very similar. There's a bit of nuance in different parts of the writing, 
uh, but they're not, it's just not being addressed in any way that I think is serious and I continue to work with it and really appreciate it. And the Guardian, Guardian program is slowly starting to grow. So I promise you, not every community, but more Indigenous communities are getting that program up and going and starting to do some of that work. And we just need to see that increase. That's what I believe anyways. And Sandra Wood asks us, what is the status on removing fish farms by the September 30th deadline set by the Cohen Commission? Well, we're not hearing a lot from the minister on that, which is really, really disappointing. Um, you know, this has been a longstanding issue in our writing. It's a very divisive issue in our writing. We've done a couple of times where we've done reach outreach in our writing and some people of course are very concerned about the economy that they believe that the fish farm industry creates and then there's a lot of people just worried about the wild salmon and I don't know how anyone would not be worried about the wild salmon and there's a lot of factors that we need to address uh, but we're we're getting a lot of letters we're bugging the minister Gord Johns who is my neighbor one of the MPs in our caucus is our uh, spokesperson on fisheries and he's been doing a lot of work to push this issue uh, forward. I know a lot of Indigenous communities have really come out strong on some of these things which we haven't seen necessarily in the past especially in that particular area and you know our party continues to believe that the government has to support the industry to move on land and it, it you know I, I know there's challenges to that uh, but there's also a lot of innovation and innovation does not happen unless there's support and investment. So I would really like to see them on land and really see not only that happen, but a lot more happen to support wild salmon in our territory because it is, there's just so many factors. Like I could get into the whole discussion about, you know, plastics in the ocean, the acidification of the ocean, the lack of, um, you know, supporting their migrate routes and there's just so much and we, and we needed a lot more active strategy. Thank you. Building on the theme of fisheries and constitutionally enshrined Aboriginal rights, I had a question. I wanted to bring attention to what has been happening on the East Coast with the Mi'kmaq fishermen who have been subjected to a campaign of harassment and violence by the non-Indigenous community. They've had their fishing equipment stolen from them, their lives put at risk by negligent and dangerous harassment on the water by other vessels, and their community members have even been denied services at gas stations and grocery stores in retaliation for what the white community views as illegal harvesting of lobster. What should the federal government be doing to solve this problem and protect Indigenous people from violence? Well, this one um, is very close to, to my heart, not just this one particular, but this whole issue of Aboriginal rights and title. Um, you know, I was having a chat with my husband the other day and he said, if we lose, it's implemented right away. You know, if we lose anything in the court system, bam, the next day there's a law on that. If we win in the court system, Indigenous communities win. It takes years and years and years for them to implement. So I think of even on our side of the country in the Neutronic Territory where they won the court case all those years ago about harvesting seafood, fish, and still struggling to get the next steps done. So here we are, we have this situation on the other side of the country where we're seeing terrible, terrible systemic racism. And again, the federal government continues to not 
put any investment and support in those programs and supporting the communities in addressing it. They leave it on really the backs of Indigenous communities who have very little resources and are now having to deal with this outcome. It is not fair, it's not right, uh, and it frustrates me tremendously. So I think what we need to see is the federal government understand. It's sort of like, you know when you walk in a store and if you break it, you pay for it? You know, this country conscientiously attacked the fundamental human rights of Indigenous people for years and years and years, since before Canada became. So over 150 years, this has been their strategy to address Indigenous people. So they totally created a system where people feel comfortable being racist, where people feel comfortable attacking them where their economic ability to support themselves was decimated. There are stories within our writing and across this country where Indigenous communities were doing quite well. They were figuring out this new system that they lived in. And then legislation, either provincially, territorial, or federally was changed. And the economic ability for those communities to move forward were completely taken away. Um, so, you know, the history has to be better known so that people can understand why we are where we are here and stop blaming Indigenous people for their own oppression, which really makes me frustrated and angry. So what I would like to see is the federal government to step up and to support them, um, to do that not just in symbolic ways, but in resources that help them manage this very, very hard time. And not again, like they set it up. Like I feel some, so frustrated sometimes. It's like, let's set it up for absolute failure so we can prove again that Indigenous people just don't get it. That is not the way that it is. These systems are systematically racist, which means these are often the outcomes. And until we start to address those systems, put resources into supporting these kind of transitions and not leaving that burden. Like we do this in this country all the time where it's like, here, <laughs> we'll give you all of this. You deal with it on top of all the other things you're dealing with. Uh, it's simply wrong. I hope that answers the question. and. Uh, I can talk for hours about it because it is such an injustice in this country. Yes, it's very alarming to see what's happening over on the East Coast right now in the Mi'kmaq. And I want to add to that. Let's finally implement United Nations declarations on the rights of Indigenous people. We had a bill. It passed through the House. It went to the Senate and they called the election and the Senate didn't pass it. So this is another promise that the, the government made. They said, we will implement this once we are elected, and they still have not. This is a framework which would really address the issue of, ish of justice for Indigenous people. And the fact that folks get so concerned about it, you know, and they think, oh, this means that Indigenous communities will have a void veto ability and nothing will ever happen. No, that what people need to understand is all too often these projects happen, Indigenous people are not even at the same table as everybody else. This is about justice. It's about being like everybody else instead of put aside and not treated the same. Yeah, and especially when we look at who is actually responsible for destroying the fisheries stocks in the Atlantic Ocean. It wasn't the Mi'kma'i. No. Okay, I have another question for you. <laughs> a, a little bit of a different topic. Um, it's from Manda. 
and it is immigration into Canada is getting very difficult, even for workers with the skills our province most needs. In, in rural communities like Cortez, it's nearly impossible to find electricians, mechanics, and other skilled trades. What can we be doing on a federal level to get more skilled immigrants across the borders and into our remote communities? Well, let me tell you, <laughs> before this job, I worked with the Immigrant Welcome Center. And so I have officially been working on this very issue for over 13 years, and it is a huge challenge. So I remember, um, I would say seven and a half years ago, I was asked to sit on a federal uh, committee reviewing how we, we sort of had, you know, immigrants come into the, to the country. And they flew me all the way out to Ottawa and I sat in a room with a bunch of the minister's staff and we went over all of these things. And one of the things that I made very clear is in the orientation manual uh, to anybody who wants to come into Canada, you can get the little orientation. It's a pretty substantive book. It talks about all these different things, what you need to know about Canada. They talk about rural communities and urban communities, but what they don't make very clear is that in rural communities, we have fairly good systems in place, that it's not the same as some countries. So if you talk to some countries, you say rural community, they're like, no school system, no grocery store, no access to anything. Uh, they don't understand that there's a lot of rural communities that may be a little more remote, but there's accessibility to services. Um, so one of the things that we, I would love to see is, is Canada get better at that. And I fought like heck for that. We got them to change a couple of lines and that's as far as they would go. It was really frustrating to me. I don't know. Uh, well, then it was a conservative government. Maybe they weren't interested in that. So I think, you know, there's a lot of different programs. Um, there's a lot of different things that worked really well. Like I remember doing tours in Winnipeg. Uh, in Brandon, where they had a bunch of temporary foreign workers uh, come into their community, but the community was very clear they wanted them to stay. So the community advocated with the ministry to get them to all become permanent residents. And what they saw in that community was a huge economic boom. It was very positive. They had to hire people in management positions uh, to speak some different languages. Like it was amazing what happened. Uh, but what they did is, I don't know if everybody remembered this, is they changed the rules uh, so that folks that were coming to Canada had to have a much higher English level, which can be a challenge uh, because what would happen is they would come in as temporary workers, become permanent residents, and they would be gone. And so I think it's about looking at what strategies work. We need to have really clear attraction strategies. We need to have the federal government step up and understand that rural communities have specific needs and we need to start attracting, attracting people who are very interested in that because there are people in the world that have those skill sets that are really keen to live in this kind of environment, but they don't know where it is. And so Canada has to become a little more strategic in that manner. And then also local government has to help out with that as well. So if people come in, we've got to find ways like, you know, there is a conservative, I'm not gonna say who it is, but there's a conservative uh, MP here who was a former mayor in Alberta. And I was a little sad to see him on the conservative side because I admired so much the work that he did in his community to get newcomers to come and to stay. So it, it's amazing who can do it, but it's, it's all of those pieces put together. And, and, you know, just continue to celebrate what you are and be honest about that. I know, uh, I remember 
meeting this lovely couple who had moved to a, a smaller community in our riding, not to Cortez. Um, and I asked him, well, how did, you, how did you get here? It's always fascinating to find out how people got here. And, and he said, well, we, we Google Earthed and we saw this beautiful place and we just kept applying for work until one of us got a job and we all moved here. And now they're all uh, Canadian citizens. At that time, they were permanent residents. So how people travel is important, but we do need a more strategic one and we need more mentorship. The other thing that really is effective is when people come in and they actually get support, not necessarily just from the sector that they're in, uh, but from other people who connect them to the community. So, you know, as a person who worked in settlement services for newcomers to Canada, one of the things we found really good is when they gave us the actual resources so that we could have volunteer coordinators that went out and found volunteers and said, hey, somebody's coming to your community, let's connect you with them and really cr create that social network as quickly as possible. We saw huge positive things happen, but that is always a challenge is those resources, especially to these smaller communities. I mean, uh, I found ways to serve smaller communities <laughs> and they it was very creative, let's just say that. Wow, thank you, Rachel. Thank you for answering all of these questions and I realize that it's very late out in Ottawa for you right now. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna say good night. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming out here virtually to be with us and to answer all of our questions. I know there were a lot of them. And thank you for sharing all of the information about how you've been keeping up the good fight out there for us. Well, thank you. And I would love to do it again. So let's talk about how we can make that happen. I really enjoy opportunities to talk with constituents. And, and I just want to thank everybody out there. We have a lot of folks that have reached out to our office and let us know what's happening. And, you know, those things, uh, I can't say how much I appreciate them. Wonderful. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for being with us. And persevering through my internet difficulties. <laughs> Thank you again, Rachel. Thank you, everyone. And, and have a good night, everyone. I will. Thank you, everyone. Take care.